Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you all today about something that's been in the back of my head for quite some time. And uh, since I have a lot to say and I didn't allocate that much time for an intro, I better get started. Um, today I'm going to talk about King Hezekiah. He has two prayers recorded in Scripture. And from these prayers, I think we can uncover a great deal about who this man was at different points in his life. Hezekiah is considered the best king that Judah ever had. He became king when he was 25 years old, succeeding his father Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was a bad king. Second Chronicles tells us that he sacrificed his children to false gods, he made images and, uh, of Baal and encouraged people to sacrifice in high places. Hezekiah made none of these mistakes. In fact, a running motif in the stories of the kings is that while some kings are better than others, none of them removed the high places where people prostrated themselves. That is, none of them except Hezekiah. Second Chronicles 29 tells us that in the very first month of his reign, he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. And after reinstating temple worship and the Passover and the priesthood, Hezekiah removes the high places, something no king has done. He's a good king who follows the Lord. Now, while Hezekiah was busy reforming Judah, what else has been going on in the world? The local superpower of the time was Assyria. Now, the Assyrian Empire was a brutal one. It was built on demonstrations of absolute strength and showing no mercy. If you think you have the stomach for it, you can look up some of the strategies that the Assyrians used to brutalize their enemies and strike fear into their hearts. It's grotesque stuff. And they were growing in strength. If we jump back to Hezekiah's father Ahaz for a moment, 2 Chronicles 28 tells us that he actually tried to make a deal with the Assyrians uh, to defeat other enemies, but that they ended up afflicting him just as much. And while Hezekiah was busy reforming Judah, in his fourth year as king, the Assyrians besieged Israel to the north. And in his sixth year, the capital city of Samaria fell, and all of Israel went into exile. Now this is really important. I want to dwell on this for a moment. Before the Assyrians came, Israel had sinned and been punished by foreign invasion many times. But they had never been exiled like this before. And they never returned. For all intents and purposes, the Assyrians completely destroyed Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's people. But that hadn't stopped the Assyrians. Now granted, Scripture tells us that God was bringing about uh, judgment on them for unfaithfulness. But I can bet you that when the Assyrians came to Judah just a few years later, the fact that they annihilated God's own Israel was at the forefront of everyone's minds. They destroyed Israel. If we were to borrow a sports term, Assyria was undefeated, and they looked unstoppable. So, the stage has been set. Where are we now? If we jump to Isaiah 36, we see that in Hezekiah's 14th year as king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has invaded Judah. And he's conquered all of its fortified cities except for one, Jerusalem. And he's now sent a large army to completely surround it. His field commander comes out to talk with the leaders of Jerusalem, to threaten and intimidate them. He tells them that relying on the Lord is foolish, and that Hezekiah doesn't have his favor. And the leaders of Jerusalem say back, speak Aramaic, not Hebrew. The Assyrian field commander had been speaking a language that everyone on the wall listening could understand. 
And the leaders of Jerusalem didn't want that. They're trying to avoid a panic. The field commander responds by shouting so that everyone can hear him. And he says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. He goes on to tell them that Assyria is undefeated. That for any of the cities or nations that they have attacked, including, I'm sure, Israel, crying out to a god has not worked. Golding A's commentary on Chronicles points out that not only are the Assyrians militarily attacking Judah, but they're bolstering that by theologically attacking them as well. Much like the Israelites escaping Egypt, Judah is facing a superpower that thinks it's divine. And that's not without some merit. Despite countless victims pleading with divinity before, that's never stopped the Assyrians. And everyone's tearing their clothes in fear and distress. And when the leaders of Jerusalem bring this news to Hezekiah, he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he goes to the temple of the Lord. Now, one of the reasons I think the story is so good is that I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a place in Scripture that more effectively communicates panic. Can you feel it? As you scan or read this story, can you see the absolute desperation that Jerusalem is under? It's palpable. Israel has fallen. Jerusalem is the only city in Judah that hasn't fallen. And the Assyrians have never lost. Imagine the stress that Hezekiah is under. After a quick distraction, Sennacherib himself sends Hezekiah a letter saying just this. And in the face of sheer panic, Hezekiah turns to the Lord. Now, We've already read this prayer once before, but I want to read it again because I think this is one of the all-time prayers of Scripture. So here it is. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. The very first thing that Hezekiah does here is to acknowledge who the Lord is. He acknowledges his true power, that he's the living God. He doesn't, for a second, question the Lord's sovereignty or the Lord's character. He spends a moment in worship, which is crazy. I don't know if I would have the strength or the presence of mind to do that, to start with worship. But Hezekiah starts by recognizing who God is. And while there's current pressure to see things differently, Hezekiah remembers how things really are that God is in control. Secondly, he acknowledges the stakes. Hezekiah does not downplay the very real threat that they're facing. He admits that the Assyrians have done everything they brag about, and in doing so, he admits his own powerlessness. He knows that he cannot save Judah. Only the Lord of hosts can. John Goldingay, in his commentary on Isaiah, writes that This is kind of the equivalent of showing God the letter that uh, Sennacherib wrote Hezekiah. 
He also writes that the Lord knew the stakes, but Hezekiah is calling on him to observe, to pay attention to what's going on. It's kind of like the equivalent of a psalm in that regard, where the psalmist asks the Lord to look, to pay attention to what he's going through. Hezekiah reminds the Lord that Judah has something on their side that has something that none of these other nations did, and that's that the Lord is on their side. Thus, Hezekiah asks for deliverance, and he doesn't ask for specific action. He doesn't say, God, strike down a bunch of Assyrians. He leaves that to the Lord and merely asks him to act. And look as to why. He asks for it that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. To God be the glory in all things. He asks for deliverance that God might be glorified. That's the supreme purpose for the Lord to act. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, save us because we deserve it. He doesn't say, save us because we're the people of Judah, your people. And he might have some justification in saying that. After all, he destroyed the high places. He led Judah back to the Lord. They're now a faithful nation once again. Wouldn't that be worth the Lord saving them? But Hezekiah doesn't go there. He knows that, honestly, they still deserve the Lord's judgment. And so he asks, not for their sake, but for the sake of God's glory. He praises the Lord, he acknowledges the threat, and he asks that in the midst of this impossible situation, that God would be glorified. And then he trusts him. What an amazing prayer. And God answers it. Isaiah 37, 36 says that the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians. They retreat from the land of Judah, and Jerusalem is spared. We read that Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and while he's worshiping his God there, his own sons strike him down in a coup attempt. The Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer, and he chose to answer it. Hezekiah, in the midst of a desperate situation that he had no control over, called upon the Lord to work his might for his name's sake, and the Lord chose to take action. So what other results from this uh, come from this, besides the Assyrians leaving? We see that Hezekiah continues to reign as a good king. He continues to follow the Lord and lead the land of Judah in doing so. While preparing for the Assyrians to attack, Hezekiah took unprecedented measures. He diverted a water stream to flow into Jerusalem by means of an underground tunnel. He built a stronger wall to the city, and both of these are still there today. I bring these up to show that it wasn't just moral righteousness that Hezekiah led in. It led in. He also led Judah in building projects and civic pursuits into a time of financial prosperity. We see here a reminder that what, of what faith looks like in action. It's more than just following God's rules in our own private lives. It's holistic. It branches out into what we do for other people. Stuff like social justice, caring for the poor, uh, following the compassionate heart of the Lord in deeds. This is what real faith looks like. And Hezekiah had it. Second Chronicles 32 tells us that over the course of his reign, Hezekiah amassed great riches and honor and treasuries and storehouses. We read in verse 29 that he likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. Hezekiah's reign blessed Judah greatly. 
And this leads us towards the second prayer of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been very successful. And as often happens when people get very successful, it gets harder and harder to be humble. I struggle with pride myself, and I haven't even done anything all that noteworthy. I can't imagine feeling like you turned a whole nation back to the Lord and then led them through the most intense political crisis they've ever faced. Hezekiah began to be proud. But here's the thing. We're not told that in any of the narratives before the second prayer happens. But maybe we can see the signs. So what happens is that an undisclosed amount of time after the Assyrian invasion, and likely not that long afterwards, about the same time, Hezekiah becomes ill. And it's a serious illness. Isaiah 38 tells us that he's at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and tells him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Terrible news to hear. I can't imagine what must have been going through Hezekiah's mind as he heard this. So he pleads with the Lord to reconsider, to give him a second chance at life. And here's the second prayer of Hezekiah, found in Isaiah 38, verse 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, there's nothing theologically wrong with this prayer. It's doctrinally sound. He doesn't blaspheme or anything. And who can blame him for wanting the Lord to spare his life, to save him? That's certainly what I would want in this scenario. But, but who's the focus of this prayer? Who's it about? It's about Hezekiah. I'm going to paraphrase the prayer here. Lord, remember me? Remember how good I was? I was the best, God. Hezekiah seems to think now that he deserves to be saved. Because of how he was such a good king, he deserves the Lord taking divine, miraculous action to spare him. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to save him. Hezekiah asked the Lord to save Jerusalem just a chapter prior. But I want to compare this prayer with the first prayer for a moment. The first prayer opens with an acknowledging, with acknowledging the majesty of the Lord. And then Hezekiah admits that the threat is beyond him. And he asks the Lord to act, to save, so that all who hear will know that he is God. God's mentioned 11 times in this prayer. Hezekiah only mentions himself once, and it's in the plural, to include all of Judah. The second prayer has no praise, has no acknowledgement of the Lord's power and sovereignty. He's not asking for the Lord to glorify himself through healing. He's not even asking for Judah's sake, that he might be able to serve the people, continue to serve the people so well. There's none of that. It's an entirely self-centered prayer. He only mentions God once to address him, saying, God, save me, because I'm the best. Now, I want to reiterate this one more time so that I'm quite clear. Hezekiah asking for the Lord to save him is not wrong. What I'm saying is that I think this prayer betrays how his priorities and attitude has shifted. I think he cares less about serving the Lord than he ever has before in his life. I think he cares less about serving Judah than he ever has before in his life. And I think he cares more about himself than he ever has before in his life. We, all, we know that all of this will eventually come to pass. His prideful end is on its way. 
And it seems to me that we can see that prideful end coming in the tone and the attitude of this prayer. The prayer on its own maybe doesn't jump out all that much. We see people asking the Lord to save them in Scripture all the time. But look at what comes before and after. Before, this incredible, selfless, worshipful, God-fearing prayer in the midst of an even bigger threat. And afterwards, we see a prideful descent. I think that this prayer in the middle is kind of a sign that warns us of what's to come. Uh, It's not prideful, but it's indicative of a selfish, prideful mindset. But here's the thing. The Lord answers this prayer. He grants Hezekiah another 15 years of life. The Lord answers both prayers. Despite the differences in tone and respect, despite the differences in outcome that an omniscient God would have known, the Lord grants both of Hezekiah's prayers. What a giving and loving God. He blesses Hezekiah even if he doesn't deserve it like he thinks he does. But that blessing didn't change Hezekiah's heart. So what were the outcomes of both prayers? In the first, there's prosperity in the land. Hezekiah continues to lead Judah in following the Lord like they haven't in a long time. And they grow more prosperous than they have in a long time. But in the second, Hezekiah continues to indulge in pride. The first way this comes through visibly is the visit of the Babylonians. Envoys from Babylon had come after hearing that Hezekiah had been ill and recovered. And they, at least on the surface, they appeared to want to wish him well. The Babylonians were also staunch enemies of the Assyrians, so I don't doubt that that played a factor in their visit as well. In any case, they arrive, and Hezekiah doesn't hesitate to boast to them. He shows off all of his treasuries and storehouses. He brags about all of the material success that he has achieved. He makes their whole visit about himself. And based on what we saw from Hezekiah's second prayer, that seems very in character. In his commentary, Matthew Henry points out that not only did the Babylonians hate the Assyrians, but they worshipped the sun. I didn't mention it earlier, but as a sign that he would heal Hezekiah, the Lord miraculously moved the shadow of the sundial back ten steps. The Babylonians heard about Hezekiah's recovery, and probably also heard about that. Even even if they hadn't, I'm sure they would have loved to hear about it from Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a chance here to tell them about the Lord, the God of the Son, the true God of the Son, and everything else, who was sovereign enough to save him from illness and Judah from the Assyrians. But we have no record of a conversation like this. If I were to guess, I think it probably didn't even occur to him. And of course, after the Babylonians leave, Isaiah confronts Hezekiah. The choice that he made to make the visit all about himself and his exploits will have disastrous consequences for Judah. The Babylonians have seen the wealth that's there to be taken. Hezekiah has given them incentive to invade Judah themselves. And as Isaiah warns, that very thing will happen. All of Judah's treasures are doomed to be carried off to Babylon. Hezekiah's pride has planted that seed in Babylonian minds. When Isaiah tells him this, how does Hezekiah respond? Isaiah 39 verse 8 tells us that Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Wow. 
once more we see how selfish he's become. At this point, he doesn't seem to care much about the future of Judah. He takes solace in knowing that even if destruction is coming for his people, at least he won't have to face it himself. That's the last we hear about King Hezekiah. He passes away 15 years after his illness, and he's buried with his father, and fathers, and all of Judah mourns him. Despite his decline, he's still considered one of, if not the best king that Judah ever had. There's one more effect that his prideful mindset, as seen in the second prayer, had. Hezekiah's son Manasseh succeeds him as king. And if Hezekiah is considered the best king of Judah, Manasseh is considered the worst one. The high places that Hezekiah had worked so hard to destroy, Manasseh rebuilt. He put foreign idols and altars in the temple of the Lord. He practiced witchcraft, sacrificed his own children to foreign gods. Second Chronicles records him eventually repenting and turning back to the Lord, and that's obviously good. But Second Kings, which was written to convict the people of God, says no such thing. And not only does it say that he shed enough innocent blood to fill Jerusalem, but that it was during his reign that the Lord finally said that he was going to bring a disaster that would wipe Jerusalem clean like a dish. Now, how old was Manasseh when he became king? Twelve years old. He was twelve. And how many years did the Lord grant to Hezekiah on his deathbed? Fifteen. The only father that Manasseh ever knew was this selfish, prideful one. That doesn't mean that Manasseh's sins were Hezekiah's fault. Everyone's responsible for their own actions. But how could that not have had an effect? Hezekiah, while he did great things for the Lord, never modeled for his own son what truly following him means. As we saw from the second prayer, by the time Manasseh knew Hezekiah, he only cared about himself. That was his mindset. And that, in turn, was the legacy he left. He saw peace in his time, yeah. But because of his selfishness, his concern for himself, the second his time was over, Judah collapsed into idol worship and violence. All of his good work was undone because he didn't care about finishing well. And that leads towards my conclusion and application. But before we get to the idea of finishing well, I'd like to talk about prayer for just a bit. Specifically, this idea of praying selflessly. As I prepared this sermon, a question I ended up asking myself was, do I pray selfish prayers? Which, which prayer of Hezekiah do my prayers often resemble? I think for myself, it's often the second one. My prayers are often not just self-centered in nature, but also self-centered in approach. Both prayers are asking something of the Lord, but one of them keeps who God really is in mind. And the other, the other has a tone resembling, God, give me this thing. Don't I deserve it? For me, anyway, that's, that's kind of convicting to hear. I want to challenge all of us to, as we pray, keep a good perspective and focus on who the Lord really is, to approach him in humility and worship and asking for his will to be done, that he would be glorified. As we pray, let us remember who we're really praying to. In his first prayer, Hezekiah approaches the Lord with fear and respect. He's the Lord of the universe. And he loves us dearly, but we might do well to keep that in mind, even as we boldly approach him. And now we get to this idea of finishing well. 
It's absolutely a great thing to start well. Hezekiah, again, was a good king, one of the best that Judah ever had. He's praised for abandoning sin and turning to God, and rightfully so. I hope that all of us, when we face hard times and great duress, can have the trust in God that Hezekiah did, that we can praise him and ask for his will to be done as he takes action. But even if we start strong, with a great faith like Hezekiah's, and we accomplish great things for the Lord, we can't ride early success. That's, that's not how faith works. We have to keep striving towards the Lord, keep pushing. We can't sit back and coast. And that's what Hezekiah did. He had a great opportunity to lead, to help the next generation. He had a chance to ensure that the Lord would continue to be followed and that his successors would do even greater things for the Lord. And he wasted it. We like to emphasize in altar calls that it's never too late to come to the Lord. And that's true. If you're listening today and you've never accepted Christ, I want you to know that regardless of everything bad that you've ever done, you can still choose Christ. Choose to accept his forgiveness and fellowship. And you'll be saved. Hezekiah's very son, Manasseh, in Second Chronicles 33, is a great example of this. Despite all of the bad things he did, he turned back to the Lord. But for all of us that have been in the church for a long time, I want to emphasize the same thing. It's not too late to keep following the Lord, to keep choosing Christ every day. We chose him when we were younger and now we're saved, yeah. But we can't allow ourselves to grow complacent and self-centered as we rely on what we used to do. That's already part of our aim here at EFC, as we've listed growing young as a target that we're pursuing. And as someone who's more on the younger side myself, that may look like welcoming accountability and wisdom from those who've gone before. As people finish well, they pass the baton, so to speak, to the next generation. As believers, we weren't meant to do this on our own. We're made to pursue the Lord in community, to spur one another on. Hezekiah didn't finish well. My hope and prayer for us as followers of Christ is that we do. That we follow the Lord with our whole heart right to the end. And that we do everything in our power to ensure that the people we lead and people we leave behind do so too. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we come before you in, in worship and in awe, God. You alone are Lord. You're the Lord of the universe, Lord of all creation. And, and you're so far beyond our imagination or even our wildest dreams that we can't even begin to comprehend um, who you are, God. And despite that, you've, you've revealed yourself to us. You love us. You incarnated um, into man. The Son of God became Jesus of Nazareth. And he... Uh, Hey, the ultimate sacrifice that we might come to know you. That's, that's unbelievable, Lord. We pray that, that as, we, as we speak to you and connect with you and pray with you, that we would keep, uh, we would keep that sense of awe and, and worship in mind, Lord. And we pray that as we go about our, our days and our weeks and our years and the rest of our lives, God, that, that, we, would, that we would finish well, that we wouldn't fall into the trap that Hezekiah fell into, where... We do well and it goes to our heads and we don't, 
We don't pay attention to you or don't follow you that closely anymore, Lord. We pray that that even in the midst of uh, yeah of our days day to day, regardless of what they look like, that we would always keep a, a focus on you, and that the center of our hearts would be a desire to continue to follow you, continue to strive after you, to not to not grow complacent, to not coast. We ask that we would have a fervor for you, Lord. We pray this in the in the powerful, amazing name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, the question once again. Andrew and Ernie, I'll ask you to come forward. And the question was, what practice can we use to make sure we finish well? So there were a few comments here. I think it's important to invest in those who are coming after us. Find creative ways to empower and demonstrate faith to reproduce ourselves as followers of Jesus. Yeah, I kind of feel like I've been on the, on the receiving end of that the last uh, couple months here as I get the chance to preach and to, and to try out um, various gifts or ways of serving in the church. That uh, Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's very important. I like the perspective that you gave about not taking your foot off the gas and coasting. Um, I'm not going to go there. We've got a lot of examples of, of crash and burn. And uh, I don't know uh, whether I'm just a late bloomer or whether I just missed my midlife crisis entirely. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that I can identify where I had one. But I remember when I turned 60, which is just a little while ago for those of you that are wondering, um, that it, the thought that just kept hammering away in my mind is uh, make sure you finish well. And, and I think um, Hezekiah didn't look after his relationship with God. And so he turned his focus on himself and on other things. And that's where things began to unravel. Um, so did you have any other thoughts or comments there? Yeah, there's Questions? another comment. Finish well. Ask for what you want. Allow God to adjust your ask. Allow God to adjust your ask. Remember, travel, eating out, sports, shopping, or luxuries, not needs. That was a sidebar. Hang out with people who have an other-centered life. Be accountable. Great, great. Yeah, I remember praying when I was younger, like I see the passage that's like, Whatever you ask for in the Lord's name, you'll get. I'm like, oh, perfect! I'll ask for a, you know, a, a sports car and whatever, all this stuff, right? And as I get older, I realize more that no, if you're asking in the Lord's name, what that means is that that your heart is wanting the same things that the Lord wants, right? Yep, exactly. Like that. Like, so that doesn't mean I get a Mustang or whatever, but ideally, what it means is that is that my what I'm asking for is what the Lord wants to give, a chance to be to be patient, to grow wiser, that that sort. Of so if your heart is, if you understand God's heart, then you can pray um, for something knowing that that's what he wants and that's why it happens because he wants it, not because you're, here's the German word, you're Janka, your desire is, you know, we think of prayer maybe that you have to desire you and no, it's maybe aligning your, your will with God's will. I want to just ask the question on the accountable part. How does finishing well and accountability go together? Hmm. I think finishing well is easier when you have people that keep you in check. 
I think that for someone like the king of a nation, Hezekiah, probably didn't have that many, near the end of his life, he probably didn't have a lot of people that said no to him or called him out on anything. And I think that's where you kind of start to get some sliding there. If he had been, if he had had people that kept him accountable, we see that Isaiah did earlier, we don't know what happened near the end of his life. But I think that if he had had people that kept him accountable, um, it maybe wouldn't have been so drastic. This is, this is, I mean, you've opened a can of worms here. This is where our Western culture doesn't do us any favors. Our individualism, uh, you don't challenge me, I won't challenge you. And, and this is where we are, we're not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians, we're meant to live in community where we challenge and encourage one another, we build each other up, and, and that accountability can be part of that. It's, it's a pretty fancy word these days, accountability, but it's, 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 uh, it kind of runs counter to our culture, and so we don't often do it well. Uh, I think sometimes we think of accountability as something that we do to something, someone else. Some of us feel like we have the gift of accountability where we can keep other people accountable. I, I, think, I think actually one of the things that we, we, get, we get caught in is that we say, well, nobody held Hezekiah accountable. But I think w what we also need to do is, is also realize that the, the older we get, the more likely it is that people aren't going to challenge us. The more, the more, um, what's the word? Uh, the more that we have, uh, I, was, I don't want to use the word power, but, but the more influence we have in the, in the lives of people, and as people look to us, they, we're probably going to have fewer people that are going to work at holding us accountable. Uh, it actually is our responsibility and the way that it's, that accountability happens is by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. The the only way that I can that I can have you hold me accountable to the stuff that's going on inside is for me to actually let you into that. And and you talked about our North American culture. We we all want vulnerability. We want people to be vulnerable with us, but none of us really want to be vulnerable with anybody else. Yeah. And and so as we look at that, you know, to look and to say, you know, Andrew as a as an up-and-coming church ministry person, you know, if you're looking at that in the future, you have, you have, I need to be willing to actually share some of the things that are going on in my life so that you can see that there are things that happen in the lives of people who are, have been in ministry for a while so that when those things come, that you'll realize that it's okay for you to share that with other people yeah. so that so that you can, um, so that there can be that account, that mutual account. I, one more thought came in and it's opening another can you can choose to carry on or just leave it the comment was do you just pray prayers that we think God wants to hear okay uh, sorry Andrew I'm gonna, I'm gonna please jump in because when you when you when you were talking about Hezekiah's second prayer there was part of me that was I I know that you said it a number of times it doesn't mean that it was a it was not the right thing to think that there's also there's also a point where we have to also realize that that was probably Hezekiah's honest prayer at that moment and so how does we have to be okay with the fact that God was God is big enough to hear our honest prayers that often look really selfish right like so how do we balance that that's a great question yeah 
and, and probably that makes me think of the Psalms. David prayed some of those really harsh prayers too. Mm. I'd have to say that, and we don't have the window, maybe Isaiah doesn't tell us, uh, but often in the Psalms, David ends at a good place. Maybe he starts yet, at a bad I place. You're, you're right, Lord. he ends at a good place. And here we don't have that. We have Hezekiah turning to the wall and weeping bitterly, and that's, that's where the story is left. I like what you brought out about his effect on his son Manasseh. Yeah. We often just don't realize that we are modeling for those around us. We think of our kids and our grandchildren and our friends. Um, you're under a lens. And uh, I mean, first of all, we need to be faithful to God. That should be our highest priority. But then our lives do affect those around us. Well, you even saw that in the Superbook video, right? Like yeah. we, we saw that same kind of picture. It's <laughs> sure. like, People are watching to see what it looks like for you to be a follower of Jesus. And 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 we have that opportunity to continue that. Andrew, thanks a lot for um, for bringing that, that perspective out. That was, that was something that I hadn't necessarily thought of before. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we've been challenged this morning. Uh, we've been encouraged. Uh, yes, to be honest in our prayers, transparent before you especially. Uh, we can't hide anything from you. Uh, but then help us to recognize that you are God, that ultimately you are not only the creator, but the controller and author of this universe. And uh, as your children, you uh, also care about our lives and what's going on in our lives. And you want the best uh, for us in within your will and whatever that means. Uh, so, Father, help us to walk in obedience and in trust and in faithfulness. Help us to finish well and help us to help us to set a good example for those Manasses that are coming behind us. That's so important, especially as we get older. Uh, Lord, uh, may our lives uh, reflect obedience to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.